As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Greatest Love Stories and Chapter 2 of The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. This is your host, John Hagedorn. People often ask if The Great Gatsby is a true story, and it is, in a way. Although it is fiction, its characters and story are drawn from Fitzgerald's actual experiences. It is he who speaks to the narrator, Nick Calloway. As for Jay Gatsby... According to interviews that Fitzgerald gave about the book, he initially based the character of Jay Gatsby on Max Gerlach, who was an army officer in World War I, as well as a bootlegger. Fitzgerald's wife, Zelda, backed up that claim. And now, Chapter 2 of The Great Gatsby, by F. Scott Fitzgerald. About halfway between West Egg and New York, the motor road hastily joins the railroad and runs beside it for a quarter of a mile, so as to shrink away from a certain desolate area of land. This is a valley of ashes. A fantastic farm where ashes grow like wheat into ridges and hills and grotesque gardens, where ashes take the forms of houses and chimneys and rising smoke, and finally, with a transcendent effort, of men who move dimly and already crumbling through the powdery air. Occasionally a line of gray cars crawls along an invisible track, gives out a ghostly creak, and comes to rest, and immediately the ash-gray men swarm up with leaden spades and stir up an impenetrable cloud which screens their obscure operations from your sight. But above the gray land and the spasms of bleak dust which drift endlessly over it, you perceive, after a moment, the eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg. The eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg are blue and gigantic. Their retinas are one yard high. They look out of no face, but instead from a pair of enormous yellow spectacles which pass over a non-existent nose. Evidently some wild wag of an oculist set them there to fatten his practice in the borough of Queens, and then sank down himself into eternal blindness, or forgot them and moved away. But his eyes, dimmed a little by many paintless days under sun and rain, brood on over the solemn dumping ground. The Valley of Ashes is bounded on one side by a small foul river, and when the drawbridge is up to let barges through, the passengers on waiting trains can stare at the dismal scene for as long as half an hour. There's always a halt there of at least a minute, and it was because of this that I first met Tom Buchanan's mistress. 
the fact that he had one was insisted upon wherever he was known. His acquaintances resented the fact that he turned up in popular restaurants with her, and, leaving her at the table, sauntered about, chatting with whomsoever he knew. Though I was curious to see her, I had no desire to meet her. But I did. I went up to New York with Tom on a train one afternoon, and when we stopped by the ash heaps, he jumped to his feet and, taking hold of my elbow, literally forced me from the car. "'We're getting off,' he insisted. "'I want you to meet my girl.' I think he'd tanked up a good deal at luncheon, and his determination to have my company bordered on violence. The supercilious assumption was that on Sunday afternoon I had nothing better to do. I followed him over a low, whitewashed railroad fence, and we walked back a hundred yards along the road under Dr. Eckelberg's persistent stare. The only building in sight was a small block of yellow brick sitting on the edge of the wasteland, a sort of compact main street ministering to it and contiguous to absolutely nothing. One of the three shops it contained was for rent, and another was an all-night restaurant approached by a trail of ashes. The third was a garage. Repairs. George B. Wilson. Cars bought and sold. And I followed Tom inside. The interior was unprosperous and bare. The only car visible was the dust-covered wreck of a Ford which crouched in a dim corner. It had occurred to me that this shadow of a garage must be blind and that sumptuous and romantic apartments were concealed overhead. The proprietor himself appeared in the door of an office, wiping his hands on a piece of waste. He was a blonde, spiritless man, anemic, and faintly handsome. When he saw us, a damp gleam of hope sprang into his light blue eyes. "'Hello, Wilson, old man,' said Tom, slapping him jovially on the shoulder. "'How's business?' "'I can't complain,' answered Wilson, unconvincingly. "'When are you going to sell me that car?' "'Next week. I've got my man working on it now.' "'Works pretty slow, don't he?' "'No, he doesn't,' said Tom, coldly. "'And if you feel that way about it, maybe I'd better sell it somewhere else after all.' "'I don't mean that,' explained Wilson quickly. "'I just meant—I just meant—' His voice faded off, and Tom glanced impatiently around the garage. Then I heard footsteps on the stairs, and in a moment the thickish figure of a woman blocked out the light from the office door. She was in the middle thirties, and faintly stout, but she carried her surplus flesh sensuously as some women can. Her face, above a spotted dress of dark blue crepe de chine, contained no facet or gleam of beauty, but there was an immediately perceptible vitality about her as if the nerves of her body were continually smoldering. She smiled slowly, and walking through her husband as if he were a ghost, shook hands with Tom, looking him flush in the eye. Then she wet her lips, and without turning around, spoke to her husband in a soft, coarse voice. "'Get some chairs, why don't you, so somebody can sit down.' "'Oh, sure,' agreed Wilson hurriedly, and went toward the little office, mingling immediately with the cement color of the walls. A white ashen dust veiled his dark suit and his pale hair, as it veiled everything in the vicinity." except his wife, who moved closer to Tom. "'I want to see you,' said Tom intently. "'Get on the next train.' "'All right. I'll meet you by the newsstand on the lower level.' She nodded and moved away from him just as George Wilson emerged with two chairs from his office door. We waited for her down the road and out of sight. It was a few days before the Fourth of July, and a gray, scrawny Italian child was setting torpedoes in a row along the railroad track. "'Terrible place, isn't it?' 
said Tom, exchanging a frown with Dr. Eckelberg. Yeah, awful. It does her good to get away. Doesn't her husband object? Wilson, he thinks she goes to see her sister in New York. He's so dumb he doesn't know he's alive. So Tom Buchanan and his girl and I went up together to New York. Or not quite together, for Mrs. Wilson sat discreetly in another car. Tom deferred that much to the sensibilities of those East Eggers who might be on the train. She had changed her dress to a brown-figured muslin which stretched tight over her rather wide hips as Tom helped her to the platform in New York. At the newsstand she bought a copy of Town Tattle and a moving picture magazine and, in the station drugstore, some cold cream and a small flask of perfume. Upstairs, in the solemn echoing drive, she let four taxicabs drive away before she selected a new one, lavender-colored, with gray upholstery. And in this we slid out from the mass of the station into the glowing sunshine. But immediately she turned sharply from the window and, leaning forward, tapped on the front glass. "'I want to get one of those dogs,' she said earnestly. "'I want to get one for the apartment. They're nice to have. A dog.' We backed up to a gray old man who bore an absurd resemblance to John D. Rockefeller. In a basket, swung from his neck, cowered a dozen very recent puppies of an indeterminate breed. "'What kind are they?' asked Mrs. Wilson eagerly as he came to the taxi window. "'All kinds. What kind do you want, lady?' "'I'd like to get one of those police dogs. I don't suppose you got that kind?' The man peered doubtfully into the basket, plunged in his hand, and drew one up, wriggling by the back of the neck. "'That's no police dog,' said Tom. "'No, it's not exactly a police dog,' said the man, with disappointment in his voice. "'It's more of an Airedale.' He passed his hand over the brown wash-rag of a back. "'Look at that coat. Some coat. That's a dog that'll never bother you by catching cold.' "'I think it's cute,' said Mrs. Wilson, enthusiastically. "'How much is it?' "'That dog?' He looked at it admiringly. "'Man, that dog will cost you ten dollars.' The Airedale, undoubtedly there was an Airedale concerned in it somewhere, though its feet were startlingly white, changed hands and settled down into Mrs. Wilson's lap, where she fondled the weatherproof coat with rapture. "'Is it a boy or a girl?' she asked, delicately. "'That dog? That dog's a boy.' "'It's a bitch,' said Tom decisively. "'Here's your money.' We drove over to Fifth Avenue, so warm and soft, almost pastoral, on the summer Sunday afternoon that I wouldn't have been surprised to see a great flock of white sheep turn the corner. "'Hold on,' I said. "'I have to leave you here.' "'No, you don't,' interposed Tom quickly. "'Myrtle'll be hurt if you don't come up to the apartment, won't you, Myrtle?' "'Come on,' she urged. "'I'll telephone my sister Catherine. She's said to be very beautiful by people who ought to know.' "'Well, I'd like to, but—' We went on, cutting back again over the park toward the West Hundreds. At 158th Street, the cab stopped at one slice in a long white cake of apartment houses. Throwing a regal homecoming glance around the neighborhood, Mrs. Wilson gathered up her dog and her other purchases and went haughtily in. "'I'm going to have the McKees come up,' she announced as we rose in the elevator. "'And, of course, I got to call up my sister, too.' The apartment was on the top floor, a small living room, a small dining room, a small bedroom, and a bath. The living room was crowded to the doors with a set of tapestried furniture entirely too large for it, so that to move about was to stumble continually over scenes of ladies swinging in the gardens of Versailles, 
The only picture was an over-enlarged photograph, apparently a hen sitting on a blurred rock. Looked at from a distance, however, the hen resolved itself into a bonnet, and the countenance of a stout old lady beamed down into the room. Several old copies of Town Tattle lay on the table together with a copy of Simon Called Peter, and some of the small scandal magazines of Broadway. Mrs. Wilson was first concerned with the dog. A reluctant elevator boy went for a box full of straw and some milk, to which he added on his own initiative a tin of large, hard dog biscuits, one of which decomposed apathetically in the saucer of milk all afternoon. Meanwhile, Tom brought out a bottle of whiskey from a locked bureau door. I have been drunk just twice in my life, and the second time was that afternoon, so everything that happened has a dim, hazy cast over it. Although until after eight o'clock, the apartment was full of cheerful sun. Sitting on Tom's lap, Mrs. Wilson called up several people on the telephone. Then there were no cigarettes, and I went out to buy some at the drugstore in the corner. When I came back, they had disappeared, so I sat down discreetly in the living room and read a chapter of Simon Called Peter. Either it was terrible stuff, or the whiskey disordered things because it didn't make any sense to me. Just as Tom and Myrtle, after the first drink, after the first drink, Mrs. Wilson and I called each other by our first names, reappeared. Company commenced to arrive at the apartment door. The sister, Catherine, was a slender, worldly girl of about thirty with solid, sticky bob of red hair and a complexion powdered milky white. Her eyebrows had been plucked and then drawn on again at a more rakish angle, but the efforts of nature toward the restoration of the old alignment gave a blurred air to her face. When she moved about, there was an incessant clicking as innumerable pottery bracelets jingled up and down upon her arms. She came in with such a proprietary haste and looked around so possessively at the furniture that I wondered if she lived there. But when I asked her, she laughed immoderately, repeated my question aloud, and told me she lived with a girlfriend at a hotel. Mr. McKee was a pale, feminine man from the flat below. He had just shaved, for there was a white spot of lather on his cheekbone, and he was most respectful in his greeting to everyone in the room. He informed me that he was in the artistic game, and I gathered later that he was a photographer and had made the dim enlargement of Mrs. Wilson's mother, which hovered like an ectoplasm on the wall. His wife was shrill, languid, handsome, and horrible. She told me, with pride, that her husband had photographed her a hundred and twenty-seven times since they had been married. Mrs. Wilson had changed her costume some time before, and now was attired in an elaborate afternoon dress of cream-colored chiffon, which gave out a continual rustle as she swept about the room. With the influence of the dress, her personality had also undergone a change. The intense vitality that had been so remarkable in the garage was converted into impressive hauteur. Her laughter, her gestures, her assertions became more violently affected moment by moment, and as she expanded, the room grew smaller around her until she seemed to be revolving on a noisy, creaking pivot through the smoky air. "'My dear,' she told her sister in a high, mincing shout, "'most of these fellows will cheat you every time. All they think of is money.' I had a woman up here last week to look at my feet, and when she gave me the bill, you'd have thought she'd had my appendicitis out. What was the name of the woman? asked Mrs. McKee. A Mrs. Eberhardt. She goes around looking at people's feet in their own homes. I like your dress, remarked Mrs. McKee. I think it's adorable. Mrs. Wilson rejected the compliment by raising her eyebrow in disdain. It's just a crazy old thing, 
she said. I just slip it on sometimes when I don't care what I look like. But it looks wonderful on you, if you know what I mean, pursued Mrs. McKee. If Chester could only get you in that pose, I think he could make something of it. We all looked in silence at Mrs. Wilson, who removed a strand of hair from over her eyes and looked back at us with a brilliant smile. Mr. McKee regarded her intently with his head on one side and then moved his hand back and forth slowly in front of his face. "'I should change the light,' he said after a moment. "'I'd like to bring out the modeling of the features, and I'd try to get hold of all the back hair.' "'I wouldn't think of changing the light,' cried Mrs. McKee. "'I think it's—' Her husband said, "'Shh!' and we all looked at the subject again, whereupon Tom Buchanan yawned audibly and got to his feet. "'You McKees have something to drink,' he said. "'Get some more ice and mineral water, Myrtle, before everybody goes to sleep.' "'I told that boy about the ice.' Myrtle raised her eyebrows in despair at the shiftlessness of the lower orders. "'These people! You have to keep after them all the time.' She looked at me and laughed pointlessly. Then she flounced over to the dog, kissed it with ecstasy, and swept into the kitchen, implying that a dozen chefs awaited her orders there. "'I've done some nice things out on Long Island,' asserted Mr. McKee. Tom looked at him blankly. Two of them we have framed downstairs.' "'Two what?' demanded Tom. Two studies. One of them I call Montauk Point, the Gulls, and the other I call Montauk Point, the Sea.' The sister Catherine sat down beside me on the couch. "'Do you live down on Long Island, too?' she inquired. I live at West Egg. Really? I was down there at a party about a month ago, at a man named Gatsby's. Do you know him? I live next door to him. Well, they say he's a nephew or a cousin of Kaiser Wilhelm's. That's where all his money comes from. Really? She nodded. I'm scared of him. I'd hate to have him get anything on me. This absorbing information about my neighbor was interrupted by Mrs. McKee's pointing suddenly at Catherine. Chester, I think you could do something with her. "'She broke out, but Mr. McKee only nodded in a bored way "'and turned his attention to Tom. "'I'd like to do more work on Long Island if I could get the entry. "'All I ask is that they should give me a start.' "'Ask Myrtle,' said Tom, "'breaking into a short shout of laughter as Mrs. Wilson entered with a tray. "'She'll give you a letter of introduction, won't you, Myrtle?' "'Do what?' she asked, startled. "'You'll give McKee a letter of introduction to your husband "'so he can do some studies of him.' His lips moved silently for a moment as he invented, George B. Wilson at the gasoline pump, or something like that. Catherine leaned close to me and whispered in my ear, Neither of them can stand the person they're married to. Can't they? Can't stand them. She looked at Myrtle and then at Tom. What I say is, why go on living with them if they can't stand them? If I was them, I'd get a divorce and get married to each other right away. Doesn't she like Wilson either? The answer to this was unexpected. It came from Myrtle, who had overheard the question, and it was violent and obscene. "'You see?' cried Catherine triumphantly. She lowered her voice again. "'It's really his wife that's keeping them apart. She's a Catholic, and they don't believe in divorce.' Daisy was not a Catholic, and I was a little shocked at the elaborateness of the lie. "'When they do get married,' continued Catherine, "'they're going west to live for a while until it blows over.' "'It'd be more discreet to go to Europe.' "'Oh, do you like Europe?' "'She exclaimed surprisingly. "'I just got back from Monte Carlo.' "'Really?' 
Just last year. I went over there with another girl. Stay long? No, we just went to Monte Carlo and back. We went by way of Marseille. We had over $1,200 when we started, but we got gypped out of all of it in two days in the private rooms. We had an awful time getting back, I can tell you. God, how I hated that town. The late afternoon sky bloomed in the window for a moment like the blue honey of the Mediterranean. Then the shrill voice of Mrs. McKee called me back into the room. I almost made a mistake, too, she declared vigorously. I almost married a little kike who'd been after me for years. I knew he was below me. Everybody kept saying to me, Lucille, that man's way below you. But if I hadn't met Chester, he'd have got me for sure. Yes, but listen, said Myrtle Wilson, nodding her head up and down. At least you didn't marry him. I know I didn't. Well, I married him, said Myrtle, ambiguously, and that's the difference between your case and mine. Why did you, Myrtle? demanded Catherine. Nobody forced you to. Myrtle considered. I married him because I thought he was a gentleman, she said finally. I thought he knew something about breeding, but he wasn't fit to lick my shoe. You were crazy about him for a while, said Catherine. Crazy about him? cried Myrtle incredulously. Who said I was crazy about him? I never was any more crazy about him than I was about that man there. And she pointed suddenly at me, and everyone looked at me accusingly. I tried to show by my expression that I had played no part in her past. The only crazy I was was when I married him. I knew right away I made a mistake. He borrowed somebody's best suit to get married in and never told me about it, and the man came after it one day when he was out. She looked around to see who was listening. "'Oh, is that your suit?' I said. "'This is the first I ever heard about it.' "'And then I lay down and cried to beat the band all afternoon.' "'She really ought to get away from him,' resumed Catherine to me. "'They've been living over that garage for eleven years, "'and Tom's the first sweetie she ever had.' "'The bottle of whiskey, a second one, "'was now in constant demand by all present, "'excepting Catherine, who felt just as good on nothing at all.' Tom rang for the janitor and sent him for some celebrated sandwiches, which were a complete supper in themselves. I wanted to get out and walk eastward toward the park through the soft twilight, but each time I tried to go, I became entangled in some wild, strident argument which pulled me back, as if with ropes, into my chair. Yet high over the city, our line of yellow windows must have contributed their share of human secrecy to the casual watcher in the darkening streets. And I was him, too. "'looking up and wondering. "'I was within and without, "'simultaneously enchanted and repelled "'by the inexhaustible variety of life. "'Myrtle pulled her chair close to mine, "'and suddenly her warm breath poured over me "'the story of her first meeting with Tom. "'It was on the two little seats facing each other "'that are always the last ones left on the train. "'I was going up to New York to see my sister "'and spend the night. "'He had on a dress suit and patent leather shoes "'and I couldn't keep my eyes off him, but every time he looked at me, I had to pretend to be looking at the advertisement over his head. When we came into the station, he was next to me, and his white shirt front pressed against my arm, and so I told him I'd have to call a policeman, but he knew I lied. I was so excited that when I got into a taxi with him, I didn't hardly know I was getting into a subway train. All I kept thinking about over and over was, you can't live forever, you can't live forever. She turned to Mrs. McKee, and the room rang full of her artificial laughter. "'My dear,' she cried, "'I'm going to give you this dress as soon as I'm through with it. I've got to get another one tomorrow, 
"'I'm going to make a list of all the things I've got to get. "'A massage, and a wave, and a collar for the dog, "'and one of those cute little ashtrays where you touch a spring, "'and a wreath with a black silk bow for Mother's grave that'll last all summer. "'I got to write down a list so I won't forget all the things I got to do. "'It was nine o'clock. "'Almost immediately afterward I looked at my watch and found it was ten. "'Mr. McKee was asleep on a chair with his fists clenched in his lap, "'like a photograph of a man in action.' Taking out my handkerchief, I wiped from his cheek the remains of the spot of dry lather that had worried me all afternoon. The little dog was sitting on the table looking with blind eyes through the smoke and from time to time groaning faintly. People disappeared, reappeared, made plans to go somewhere, and then lost each other, searched for each other, found each other a few feet away. Sometime toward midnight, Tom Buchanan and Mrs. Wilson stood face to face discussing in impassioned voices whether Miss Wilson had any right to mention Daisy's name. "'Daisy, Daisy, Daisy!' shouted Mrs. Wilson. "'I'll say it whenever I want to. "'Daisy, Day!' Making a short, deft movement, Tom Buchanan broke her nose with his open hand. Then there were bloody towels upon the bathroom floor, and women's voices scolding, and high over the confusion a long, broken wail of pain. Mr. McKee awoke from his doze and started in a daze toward the door. When he had gone halfway, he turned around and stared at the scene, his wife and Catherine scolding and consoling as they stumbled here and there among the crowded furniture with articles of aid, and the despairing figure on the couch bleeding fluidly and trying to spread a copy of Town Tattle over the tapestry scenes of Versailles. Then Mr. McKee turned and continued on out the door. Taking my hat from the chandelier, I followed. "'Come to lunch some day.' he suggested, as we groaned down in the elevator. Where? Anywhere. Keep your hands off the lever, snapped the elevator boy. I beg your pardon, said Mr. McKee with dignity. I didn't know I was touching it. All right, I agreed. I'll be glad to. Then I was lying half asleep in the cold lower level of the Pennsylvania station, staring at the morning tribune and waiting for the four o'clock train. We'll return to Chapter 3 right after this message from our sponsors. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant, and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special, limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, Chapter 3 of The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. There was music from my neighbor's house through the summer nights. In his blue gardens, men and girls came and went like moths among the whisperings and the champagne and the stars. At high tide in the afternoon, I watched his guests diving from the tower of his raft or taking the sun on the hot sand of his beach while his two motorboats slit the waters of the sound, drawing aquaplanes over cataracts of foam. On weekends, his Rolls Royce became an omnibus, bearing parties to and from the city, between nine in the morning and long past midnight, while his station wagon scampered like a brisk yellow bug to meet all the trains. And on Mondays, eight servants, including an extra gardener, toiled all day with mops and scrubbing brushes and hammers and garden shears, repairing the ravages of the night before. Every Friday, five crates of oranges and lemons arrived from a fruiterer in New York. Every Monday, those same oranges and lemons left his back door in a pyramid of pulpless halves. There was a machine in the kitchen which could extract the juice of 200 oranges in half an hour, if a little button was pressed 200 times by a butler's thumb. At least once a fortnight, a corps of caterers came down with several hundred feet of canvas and enough colored lights to make a Christmas tree of Gatsby's enormous garden. On buffet tables, garnished with glistening hors d'oeuvre spiced baked hams crowded against salads of harlequin designs and pastry pigs and turkeys bewitched to a dark gold. In the main hall, a bar with a real brass rail was set up and stocked with gins and liquors and with cordials so long forgotten that most of his female guests were too young to know one from another. By seven o'clock, the orchestra has arrived. No thin five-piece affair, but a whole pitful of oboes and trombones and saxophones and viols and cornets and piccolos and low and high drums. The last swimmers have come in from the beach now and are dressing upstairs. The cars from New York are parked five deep in the drive, and already the halls and salons and verandas are gaudy with primary colors and hair shorn in strange new ways and shawls beyond the dreams of Castile. The bar is in full swing and floating rounds of cocktails permeate the garden outside until the air is alive with chatter and laughter and casual innuendo and introductions forgotten on the spot and enthusiastic meetings between women who never knew each other's names. The lights grow brighter as the earth lurches away from the sun and now the orchestra is playing yellow cocktail music and the opera voices pitches a key higher. Laughter is easier, minute by minute, spilled with prodigality, tipped out at a cheerful word. The groups change more swiftly, swell with new arrivals, dissolve and form in the same breath. Already there are wanderers, confident girls who weave here and there among the stouter and more stable, become for a sharp, joyous moment the center of a group, and then excited with triumph, glide on through the sea change of faces and voices and color under the constantly changing light. Suddenly one of those gypsies in trembling opal seizes a cocktail out of the air, dumps it down for courage, and moving her hands like Frisco, dances out alone on the canvas platform. A momentary hush. The orchestra leader varies his rhythm obligingly for her, and there is a burst of chatter as the erroneous news goes around that she is Gilda Gray's understudy from the Follies. The party has begun. I believe that on that first night I went to Gatsby's house, I was one of the few guests who had actually been invited. People were not invited. They went there. They got into automobiles which bore them out to Long Island, and somehow they ended up at Gatsby's door. 
Once there, they were introduced by somebody who knew Gatsby, and after that they conducted themselves according to the rules of behavior associated with amusement parks. Sometimes they came and went without having met Gatsby at all, came for the party with a simplicity of heart that was its own ticket of admission. I had been actually invited. A chauffeur in uniform of robin's egg blue crossed my lawn early that Saturday morning with a surprisingly formal note from his employer. The honor would be entirely Gatsby's, it said, if I would attend his little party that night. He had seen me several times and had intended to call on me long before, but a peculiar combination of circumstances had prevented it. Signed, J. Gatsby, in a majestic hand. Dressed up in white flannels, I went over to his lawn a little after seven and wandered around rather ill at ease among swirls and eddies of people I didn't know, though here and there was a face I had noticed on the commuting train. I was immediately struck by the number of young Englishmen dotted about, all well-dressed, all looking a little hungry, and all talking in low, earnest voices to solid and prosperous Americans. I was sure that they were selling something— bonds or insurance or automobiles. They were, at least, agonizingly aware of the easy money in the vicinity, and convinced that it was theirs for a few words in the right key. As soon as I arrived, I made an attempt to find my host, but the two or three people of whom I asked his whereabouts stared at me in such an amazed way, and denied so vehemently any knowledge of his movements, that I slunk off in the direction of the cocktail table, the only place in the garden where a single man could linger without looking purposeless and alone." I was on my way to getting roaring drunk from sheer embarrassment when Jordan Baker came out of the house and stood at the head of the marble steps, leaning a little backward and looking with contemptuous interest down into the garden. Welcome or not, I found it necessary to attach myself to someone before I should begin to address cordial remarks to the passers-by. "'Hello!' I roared, advancing toward her. My voice seemed unnaturally loud across the garden. "'I thought you might be here.' "'She responded absently as I came up. "'I remembered you lived next door to—' "'She held my hand impersonally "'as I promised that she'd take care of me in a minute "'and gave ear to two girls in twin yellow dresses "'who stopped at the foot of the steps. "'Hello!' they cried together. "'Sorry you didn't win.' "'That was for the golf tournament. "'She had lost in the finals the week before. "'You don't know who we are,' said one of the girls in yellow, "'but we met you here about a month ago.' "'You've dyed your hair since then,' remarked Jordan. "'And I started, but the girls had moved casually on, "'and her remark was addressed to the premature moon, "'produced like the supper, no doubt, out of a caterer's basket. "'With Jordan's slender golden arm resting in mine, "'we descended the steps and sauntered about through the garden. "'A tray of cocktails floated at us through the twilight, "'and we sat down at a table with the two girls in yellow and three men, "'each one introduced to us as Mr. Mumble.' "'Do you come to these parties often?' inquired Jordan of the girl beside her. "'The last one was the one I met you at,' answered the girl, in an alert, confident voice. She turned to her companion. "'Wasn't it for you, Lucille?' "'It was for Lucille, too. "'I like to come,' Lucille said. "'I never care what I do, so I always have a good time. "'When I was here last I tore my gown on a chair, and he asked me my name and address.' Inside of a week, I got a package from Courier's with a new evening gown in it. Did you keep it? asked Jordan. Sure I did. I was going to wear it tonight, but it was too big in the bust and had to be altered. It was gas blue with lavender beads. Two hundred and sixty-five dollars. 
"'There's something funny about a fellow that'll do a thing like that,' said the other girl eagerly. "'He doesn't want any trouble with anybody.' "'Who doesn't?' I inquired. "'Gatsby. Somebody told me—' The two girls and Jordan leaned together confidentially. "'Somebody told me they thought he killed a man once.' A thrill passed over all of us. The three Mr. Mumbles bent forward and listened eagerly. "'I don't think it's so much that,' argued Lucille skeptically. "'It's more that he was a German spy during the war.' One of the men nodded in confirmation. "'I heard that from a man who knew all about him. Grew up with him in Germany,' he assured us positively. "'Oh, no,' said the first girl. "'It couldn't be that, because he was in the American army during the war.' As our credulity switched back to her, she leaned forward with enthusiasm. "'You look at him sometimes when he thinks nobody's looking at him. I'll bet he killed a man.' She narrowed her eyes and shivered. Lucille shivered. We all turned and looked around for Gatsby. It was testimony to the romantic speculation he inspired that there were whispers about him from those who found little that it was necessary to whisper about in this world. The first supper, there would be another one after midnight, was now being served and Jordan invited me to join her own party, who were spread around a table on the other side of the garden. There were three married couples and Jordan's escort, a persistent undergraduate given to violent innuendo, and obviously under the impression that sooner or later Jordan was going to yield him up her person to a greater or lesser degree. Instead of rambling, this party had preserved a dignified homogeneity, and assumed to itself the function of representing the staid nobility of the countryside, East Egg condescending to West Egg, "'and carefully on guard against his spectroscopic gaiety. "'Let's get out,' whispered Jordan, "'after a somehow wasteful and inappropriate half-hour. "'This is much too polite for me.' "'We got up, and she explained that we were going to find the host. "'I had never met him,' she said, "'and it was making me uneasy. "'The undergraduate nodded in a cynical, melancholy way. "'The bar, where we glanced first, was crowded, "'but Gatsby was not there.' She couldn't find him from the top of the steps, and he wasn't on the veranda. On a chance we tried an important-looking door, and walked into a high Gothic library paneled with carved English oak, and probably transported complete from some ruin overseas. A stout, middle-aged man with enormous owl-eyed spectacles was sitting somewhat drunk on the edge of a great table, staring with unsteady concentration at the shelves of books. As we entered, he wheeled excitedly around and examined Jordan from head to foot. "'What do you think?' he demanded impetuously. "'About what?' He waved his hand toward the bookshelves. "'About that. As a matter of fact, you needn't bother to ascertain. I ascertained. They're real.' "'The books?' He nodded. "'Absolutely real. Have pages and everything. I thought they'd be a nice, durable cardboard. Matter of fact, they're absolutely real. Pages.' "'Pages, and here, let me show you.' "'Taking our skepticism for granted, "'he rushed to the bookcases "'and returned with volume one "'of the Stoddard Lectures. "'See?' he cried triumphantly. "'It's a bona fide piece of printed matter. "'It fooled me. "'This fellow's a regular Belasco. "'It's a triumph. "'What thoroughness! "'What realism! "'Knew when to stop, too. "'Didn't cut the pages. "'But what do you want?' "'What do you expect?' "'He snatched the book from me "'and replaced it hastily on its shelf, "'muttering that if one brick was removed "'the whole library was liable to collapse. "'Who brought you?' he demanded. "'Or did you just come?' 
I was brought. Most people were brought. Jordan looked at him alertly, cheerfully, without answering. I was brought by a woman named Roosevelt, he continued. Mrs. Claude Roosevelt. Do you know her? I met her somewhere last night. I've been drunk for about a week now, and I thought it might sober me up to sit in the library. Has it? A little bit, I think. I can't tell yet. I've only been here an hour. Did I tell you about the books? They're real. Yeah, you told us. We shook hands with him gravely and went back outdoors. There was dancing now on the canvas in the garden, old men pushing young girls backward in eternal graceless circles, superior couples holding each other tortuously, passionately, and keeping in the corners, and a great number of single girls dancing individualistically or relieving the orchestra for a moment of the burden of the banjo or the traps. By midnight the hilarity had increased. A celebrated tenor had sung in Italian, and a notorious contralto had sung in jazz, and between the numbers people were doing stunts all over the garden, while happy, vacuous bursts of laughter rose toward the summer sky. A pair of stage twins, who turned out to be the girls in yellow, did a baby act in costume, and champagne was served in glasses bigger than finger bowls. The moon had risen higher, and floating in the sound was a triangle of silver scales, trembling a little to the stiff, tinny drip of the banjos on the lawn. I was still with Jordan Baker. We were sitting at a table with a man of about my age and a rowdy little girl who gave way upon the slightest provocation to uncontrollable laughter. I was enjoying myself now. I had taken two finger bowls of champagne, and the scene had changed before my eyes into something significant, elemental, and profound. At a lull in the entertainment, the man looked at me and smiled. "'Your face is familiar,' he said, politely. "'Weren't you in the Third Division during the war?' "'Why, yes, I was in the Ninth Machine Gun Battalion. "'I was in the Seventh Infantry until June 1918. "'I knew I'd seen you somewhere before. "'We talked for a moment about some wet, gray little villages in France. "'Evidently he lived in this vicinity, "'for he told me that he had just bought a hydroplane "'and was going to try it out in the morning. "'Want to go with me, old sport? "'Just near the shore along the Sound. "'What time? "'Any time that suits you best.' It was on the tip of my tongue to ask his name when Jordan turned around and smiled. "'Having a gay time now?' she inquired. "'Much better.' I turned again to my new acquaintance. "'This is an unusual party for me. I haven't seen the host. I live over there.' I waved my hand at the invisible hedge in the distance, and this man Gatsby sent over his chauffeur with an invitation. For a moment he looked at me as if he failed to understand. "'I'm Gatsby.' "'he said suddenly. "'What?' I exclaimed. "'Oh, I beg your pardon. "'I thought you knew, old sport. "'I'm afraid I'm not a very good host.' "'He smiled understandingly, "'much more than understandingly. "'It was one of those rare smiles "'with a quality of eternal reassurance in it "'that you may come across four or five times in life. "'It faced, or seemed to face, "'the whole external world for an instant, "'and then concentrated on you,' with an irresistible prejudice in your favor. It understood you just so far as you wanted to be understood, believed in you as you would like to believe in yourself, and assured you that it had precisely the impression of you that, at your best, you hoped to convey. Precisely at that point it vanished, and I was looking at an elegant young roughneck, a year or two over thirty, 
whose elaborate formality of speech just missed being absurd. Sometime before he introduced himself, I got a strong impression that he was picking his words with care. Almost at the moment when Mr. Gatsby identified himself, a butler had hurried toward him with the information that Chicago was calling him on the wire. He excused himself with a small bow that included each of us in turn. "'If you want anything, just ask for it, old sport,' he urged me. "'Excuse me. I will rejoin you later.' When he was gone, I turned immediately to Jordan, constrained to assure her of my surprise. I had expected that Mr. Gatsby would be a florid and corpulent person in his middle years. "'Who is he?' I demanded. "'Do you know?' "'He's just a man named Gatsby. "'Where is he from, I mean, and what does he do?' "'Now you're started on the subject,' she answered with a wan smile. "'Well, he told me once he was an Oxford man.' A dim background started to take shape behind him, but at her next remark it faded away. "'However, I don't believe it.' "'Why not?' "'I don't know,' she insisted. "'I just don't think he went there.' Something in her tone reminded me of the other girl's "'I think he killed a man,' and had the effect of stimulating my curiosity. I would have accepted without question the information that Gatsby sprang from the swamps of Louisiana or from the lower east side of New York. That was comprehensible. But young men didn't, at least in my provincial inexperience, I believe they didn't, drift coolly out of nowhere and buy a palace on Long Island Sound. Anyhow, he gives large parties, said Jordan, changing the subject with an urbane distaste for the concrete. And I like large parties. They're so intimate. At small parties there isn't any privacy. There was the boom of a bass drum, and the voice of the orchestra leader rang out suddenly above the echolalia of the garden. "'Ladies and gentlemen,' he cried, "'at the request of Mr. Gatsby, we're going to play for you Mr. Vladimir Tostov's latest work, which attracted so much attention at Carnegie Hall last May. If you read the papers, you know there was a big sensation.' He smiled with jovial condescension and added, "'Some sensation!' "'whereupon everybody laughed. "'The piece is known,' he concluded lustily, "'as Vladimir Tostov's Jazz History of the World. "'The nature of Mr. Tostov's composition eluded me, "'because just as it began my eyes fell on Gatsby, "'standing alone on the marble steps "'and looking from one group to another with approving eyes. "'His tanned skin was drawn attractively tight on his face, "'and his short hair looked as though it were trimmed every day. "'I could see nothing sinister about him, I wondered if the fact that he was not drinking helped to set him off from his guests, for it seemed to me that he grew more correct as the fraternal hilarity increased. When the jazz history of the world was over, girls were putting their heads on men's shoulders in a puppyish, convivial way. Girls were swooning backward playfully into men's arms, even into groups knowing that someone would arrest their falls. But no one swooned backward on Gatsby, and no French bob touched Gatsby's shoulder and no singing quartets were formed with Gatsby's head for one link. I beg your pardon. Gatsby's butler was suddenly standing beside us. Miss Baker, he inquired, I beg your pardon, but Mr. Gatsby would like to speak to you alone. With me? she exclaimed in surprise. Yes, madam. She got up slowly, raising her eyebrows at me in astonishment, and followed the butler toward the house. I noticed that she wore her evening dress, all her dresses, like sports clothes. There was a jauntiness about her movements as if she had first learned to walk upon golf courses on clean, crisp mornings. I was alone, and it was almost two. 
for some time confused and intriguing sounds had issued from a long, many-windowed room which overhung the terrace. Eluding Jordan's undergraduate, who was now engaged in an obstetrical conversation with two chorus girls, and who employed me to join him, I went inside. The large room was full of people. One of the girls in yellow was playing a piano, and beside her stood a tall, red-haired young lady from a famous chorus engaged in song. She had drunk a quantity of champagne, and during the course of her song she had decided ineptly that everything was very, very sad. She was not only singing, she was weeping, too. Wherever there was a pause in the song, she filled it with gasping, broken sobs, and then took up the lyric again in a quavering soprano. The tears coursed down her cheeks. Not freely, however, for when they came into contact with her heavily beaded eyelashes, they assumed an inky color and pursued the rest of their way in slow black rivulets. A humorous suggestion was made that she sing the notes on her face, whereupon she threw up her hands, sank into a chair, and went off into a deep, vinous sleep. "'She had a fight with the man who says he's her husband,' explained a girl at my elbow. I looked around. Most of the remaining women were now having fights with men said to be their husbands. Even Jordan's party, the quartet from East Egg, were rent asunder by dissension. One of the men was talking with curious intensity to a young actress, and his wife, after attempting to laugh at the situation in a dignified and indifferent way, broke down entirely and resorted to flank attacks. At intervals she appeared suddenly at his side like an angry diamond and hissed, You promised! into his ear. The reluctance to go home was not confined to wayward men. The hall was at present occupied by two deplorably sober men and their highly indignant wives. The wives were sympathizing with each other in slightly raised voices. Whenever he sees I'm having a good time, he wants to go home. I've never heard anything so selfish in my life. We're always the first ones to leave. So are we. Well, we're almost the last tonight, said one of the men sheepishly. The orchestra left half an hour ago. In spite of the wives' agreement that such malevolence was beyond credibility, the dispute ended in a short struggle, and both wives were lifted kicking into the night. As I waited for my hat in the hall, the door of the library opened, and Jordan Baker and Gatsby came out together. He was saying some last word to her, but the eagerness in his manner tightened abruptly into formality as several people approached him to say goodbye. Jordan's party were calling impatiently to her from the porch, but she lingered for a moment to shake hands. "'I've just heard the most amazing thing,' she whispered. "'How long are we in there?' Uh, "'About an hour.' "'It was simply amazing,' she repeated abstractedly. "'But I swore I wouldn't tell it, and here I am tantalizing you.' She yawned gracefully in my face. "'Please come and see me. Phone book. Under the name of Mrs. Sigourney Howard, my aunt.' She was hurrying off as she talked. Her brown hand waved a jaunty salute as she melted into her party at the door. Rather ashamed that on my first appearance I had stayed so late, I joined the last of Gatsby's guests who were clustered around him. I wanted to explain that I had hunted for him early in the evening, and to apologize for not having known him in the garden. "'Don't mention it,' he enjoined me eagerly. "'Don't give it another thought, old sport.' The familiar expression held no more familiarity than the hand which reassuringly brushed my shoulder. And don't forget, we're going up in the hydroplane tomorrow morning at nine o'clock. Then the butler, behind his shoulder, A Philadelphia wants you on the phone, sir. All right, in a minute. Tell him I'll be right there. 
"'Good night. "'Good night. "'Good night,' he smiled, "'and suddenly there seemed to be a pleasant significance "'in having been among the last to go, "'as if he had desired it all the time. "'Good night, old sport. "'Good night.' "'But as I walked down the steps "'I saw that the evening was not quite over. Fifty feet from the door "'a dozen headlights illuminated a bizarre and tumultuous scene. "'In the ditch beside the road, "'right side up but violently shorn of one wheel,' "'rested a new coupe which had left Gatsby's drive not two minutes before. "'The sharp jut of a wall accounted for the detachment of the wheel "'which was now getting considerable attention from half a dozen curious chauffeurs. "'However, as they had left their cars blocking the road, "'a harsh discordant din from those in the rear had been audible for some time "'and added to the already violent confusion of the scene. "'A man in a long duster had dismounted from the wreck "'and now stood in the middle of the road, looking from the car to the tire and from the tire to the observers, in a pleasant, puzzled way. "'See?' he explained. "'It went in the ditch.' The fact was infinitely astonishing, and I recognized first the unusual quality of wonder, and then the man. It was the late patron of Gatsby's library. "'How did it happen?' He shrugged his shoulders. "'I knew nothing whatever about mechanics,' he said decisively. "'But how did it happen? Did you run into the wall?' "'Don't ask me,' said Owl-Eyes, washing his hands of the whole matter. "'I know very little about driving, next to nothing. "'It happened, and that's all I know.' "'Well, if you're a poor driver, you oughtn't try driving at night.' "'But I wasn't even trying,' he explained indignantly. "'I wasn't even trying.' "'An odd hush fell upon the bystanders. "'Do you want to commit suicide?' "'You don't understand.' "'explained the criminal. "'I wasn't driving. "'There's another man in the car.' "'The shock that followed this declaration "'found voice in a sustained, "'Ah!' "'as the door of the coupe swung slowly open. "'The crowd, it was now a crowd, "'stepped back involuntarily, "'and when the door was opened wide, "'there was a ghostly pause. "'Then, very gradually, part by part, "'a pale, dangling individual stepped out of the wreck, "'pawing tentatively at the ground "'with a large, uncertain dancing shoe.' Blinded by the glare of the headlights, and confused by the incessant groaning of the horns, the apparition stood swaying for a moment before he perceived the man in the duster. "'What's the matter?' he inquired calmly. "'Did we run out of gas?' "'Look!' Half a dozen fingers pointed at the amputated wheel. He stared at it for a moment, and then looked upward as though he suspected that it had dropped from the sky. "'It came off,' someone explained. He nodded. At first I didn't notice we'd stopped. A pause. Then taking a long breath and straightening his shoulders, he remarked in a determined voice, I wonder if you'll tell me where there's a gasoline station. At least a dozen men, some of them a little better off than he was, explained to him that wheel and car were no longer joined by any physical bond. Back it out, he suggested after a moment. Put her in reverse. But the wheel's off. He hesitated. "'No harm in trying,' he said. The caterwauling horns had reached a crescendo, and I turned away and cut across the lawn toward home. I glanced back once. A wafer of a moon was shining over Gatsby's house, making the night fine as before, and surviving the laughter and the sound of his still glowing garden. A sudden emptiness seemed to flow now from the windows, and the great doors— endowing with complete isolation the figure of the host who stood on the porch, 
his hands up in a formal gesture of farewell. Reading over what I have written so far, I say I have given the impression that the events of three nights several weeks apart were all that absorbed me. On the contrary, they were merely casual events in a crowded summer, and, until much later, they absorbed me infinitely less than my personal affairs. Most of the time I worked. In the early morning the sun threw my shadow westward as I hurried toward the white chasms of lower New York to the probity trust. I knew the other clerks and young bond salesmen by their first names and lunched with them in dark crowded restaurants on little pig sausages and mashed potatoes and coffee. I even had a short affair with a girl who lived in Jersey City and worked in the accounting department. But her brother began throwing mean looks in my direction, so when she went on her vacation in July, I let it blow quietly away. I took dinner usual at the Yale Club. For some reason it was the gloomiest event of my day. And then I went upstairs to the library and studied investments and securities for a conscientious hour. There were generally a few rioters around, but they never came into the library, so it was a good place to work. After that, if the night was mellow, I strolled down Madison Avenue past the old Murray Hill Hotel and over 33rd Street to the Pennsylvania Station. I began to like New York, the racy, adventurous feel of it at night, and the satisfaction that the constant flicker of men and women and machines gives to the restless eye. I liked to walk up Fifth Avenue and pick out romantic women from the crowd and imagine that in a few minutes I was going to enter into their lives, and no one would ever know or disapprove. Sometimes, in my mind, I followed them to their apartments on the corners of hidden streets, and they turned and smiled back at me before they faded through a door into warm darkness. At the enchanted metropolitan twilight I felt a haunting loneliness sometimes, and felt it in others. Poor young clerks who loitered in front of windows waiting until it was time for a solitary restaurant dinner. Young clerks in the dusk, wasting the most poignant moments of night and life. Again at eight o'clock, when the dark lanes of the forties were five deep with throbbing taxicabs, bound for the theater district, I felt a sinking in my heart. Forms leaned together in the taxis as they waited, and voices sang, and there was laughter from unheard jokes, and lighted cigarettes outlined unintelligible gestures inside. Imagining that I, too, was hurrying toward gaiety and sharing their intimate excitement, I wished them well. For a while I lost sight of Jordan Baker, and then in midsummer I found her again. At first I was flattered to go places with her because she was a golf champion and everyone knew her name. Then it was something more. I wasn't actually in love, but I felt a sort of tender curiosity. The bored, haughty face that she turned to the world concealed something. Most affectations conceal something eventually, even though they don't in the beginning. And one day I found what it was. When we were on a house party together up in Warwick, she left a borrowed car out in the rain with the top down, and then lied about it. And suddenly I remembered the story about her that had eluded me that night at Daisy's. At her first big golf tournament there was a row that nearly reached the newspapers, a suggestion that she had moved her ball from a bad lie in the semifinal round. The thing approached the proportions of a scandal, and then died away. A caddy retracted his statement, and the only other witness admitted that he might have been mistaken. The incident and the name had remained together in my mind. Jordan Baker instinctively avoided clever, shrewd men, and now I saw that this was because she felt safer on a plane where any divergence from a code would be thought impossible. She was incurably dishonest. 
she wasn't able to endure being at a disadvantage, and giving this unwillingness, I suppose she had begun dealing in subterfuges when she was very young in order to keep that cool, insolent smile turned to the world, and yet satisfy the demands of her hard, jaunty body. It made no difference to me. Dishonesty in a woman is a thing you never blame deeply. I was casually sorry, and then I forgot. It was on that same house party that we had a curious conversation about driving a car. It started because she passed so close to some workmen that our fender flicked a button on one man's coat. "'You're a rotten driver,' I protested. "'Either you ought to be more careful, or you oughtn't to drive at all.' "'I am careful.' "'No, you're not.' "'Well, other people are,' she said lightly. "'What's that got to do with it?' "'They'll keep out of my way.' "'She insisted. "'It takes two to make an accident. "'Suppose you meet somebody just as careless as yourself.' "'I hope I never will,' she answered. "'I hate careless people. "'That's why I like you.' "'Her grey, sun-strained eyes stared straight ahead, "'but she had deliberately shifted our relations, "'and for a moment I thought I loved her. "'But I am slow-thinking and full of interior rules "'that act as breaks on my desires.' and I knew that first I had to get myself definitely out of that tangle back home. I'd been writing letters once a week and signing them, Love Nick, and all I could think of was how, when that certain girl played tennis, a faint mustache of perspiration appeared on her upper lip. Nevertheless, there was a vague understanding that had to be tactfully broken off before I was free. Everyone suspects himself of at least one of the cardinal virtues, and this is mine. I am one of the few honest people... That I've ever known. We'll return with Chapter 4 of The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald next week, Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Please do send us a review for 1001 Stories for the Road if you're enjoying our story. And also, please share with a friend. Until next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, this is your host, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Stories for the Road. And we'll be back soon.